Blow through us, Holy Spirit, and disarm our hearts and minds that we might hear and see your vision for life. Live together with you and each other in freedom and the security of knowing and sharing your love. And hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. Here now, reading from Exodus. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses God's name that way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals or the immigrant who is living with you. Because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God for the people of God. Margie Record was the last of the 22 people who were killed in the mass shooting inside of an El Paso Walmart on August 3rd to be buried. That was yesterday. All of the previous funerals were kept private, but Margie's husband, Antonio Basco, was worried that not many people would show up to remember his wife because he had no other family and they didn't socialize a whole lot. And so he issued an open invitation to the public. More than 700 people showed up. There were at least 900 floral arrangements that arrived from places as far away as Asia, and a few of them from Dayton, Ohio, where another mass shooting occurred just hours after the one in El Paso. People want to respond somehow. They want to do something, something that feels meaningful in the face of another mass shooting. Y'all, I am exhausted. Navigating the gun debate is exhausting. So I'm going to start with self-revelation, a confession of, of sorts. I'm going to start with my own experience. I own guns. And I have mixed feelings about that. 
And I'd like to blame it all on my husband, who is not here today, (laughs) but who is also very knowledgeable about and very practiced with firearms. But the truth is, I owned a handgun before I ever met my husband. Actually, I owned two. I had a Walther 380 and a 357 Magnum. Not because I knew a whole lot about guns or even how to shoot them particularly well, but because I lived alone and someone gave them to me for protection. I have been around guns my whole life. I've handled them. Ever since I was four years old and accidentally ran across my Uncle Curtis's 38 Special in his nightstand, fully loaded, no safety, I knew enough to hold it properly, and I was very excited, so I ran into the kitchen where my Aunt Vicky was, prepared, was washing the dishes. She almost had a heart attack when she turned around to find all two and a half feet of me aiming a pistol at her. She says the trigger was covered. Apparently, the look on her face and the tone of her voice were enough that I didn't flinch when she told me to lay it on the ground so no one was harmed, and it was secured from that point forward, lesson learned. As a girl, I enjoyed shooting handguns and rifles with my dad, and at 10 years old, I got to shoot a double-barrel sawed-off shotgun because a friend of my mother's made ammunition, and we'd go out in the woods and shoot all of the bullets that didn't pass inspection. Even though the first barrel knocked me off my feet, I got right back up and shot the second barrel, My husband, James, got shot in the head when he was 19 by his dad, he denies it, when a pellet from his shotgun uh, ricocheted off of a tree while they were bird hunting. It missed his eyes but landed right between them. It's still there. I was shocked and I was pretty impressed, actually, when I discovered that my grandmother, who's the sweetest, kindest woman you would ever want to meet, slept with a pistol under her mattress, which started, she told me, when one of my granddaddy's brothers was threatening him out in the yard with a knife. She ran him off with the pistol and kept it handy ever, uh, ever since that then. James and his buddies, they go elk hunting occasionally, about every two years or so, and when the hunt's a success, we eat pretty well. When Michaela was in first grade, we were told at the parent-teacher conference that Michaela's response when asked what her favorite thing to do with her daddy was, she said, clean guns. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, the other kids were fascinated by this and exclaimed, you get to play with guns? Michaela immediately shut them down. She said, no, you never play with guns. You don't even touch a gun unless your mommy or your daddy tells you it's okay. Both Michaela and Zay have learned how to clean guns and how to safely handle them and when not to handle them and what to do if they see someone else who has a gun and how to fire them. They're both pretty good shots, actually. All four of us went skeet shooting just this past week in Montana. I took a concealed carrier's course one time, but I never did actually get my license. And on two separate occasions, I have disarmed people who were threatening to shoot themselves. That was scary. And I have watched, and I have wept, and I have listened as over and over and over again, we receive reports of all sorts of gun-related deaths in our country. 
Accidental death, suicides, homicide, mass shootings, terrorist acts. Roughly 39,773 people died in 2017 as a result of gunshot wound, according to the CDC. That's the most recent year in which they have complete statistics. The gun debate deals with these statistics in a variety of ways. Most say it's a tragedy and we need to figure out a better way to prevent these sorts of deaths. But of course, the ideas on how to prevent these deaths range from get rid of all guns to arm everyone. Those who would get rid of all guns cite statistics from other countries whose citizens possess far fewer guns than we do and who also experience far less gun violence than we do. Those who want to arm everyone insist that getting rid of guns is not going to solve the problem because guns don't kill, people do. And when you have a gun-free zone, that's just like painting a big bullseye on your door. You're just inviting the crazies to come and attack you because they know that there will be no resistance. Peppered in um, are various gun safety measures that people propose. Things from require manufacturers to include safeties on all guns to design bullets that can be traced back to specific guns to legislate stricter screening processes prior to the purchase of a gun, one that includes private sales. Currently, the universal background check bill is on the table. Maybe require potential gun owners to take a gun safety course. Y'all, I saw on Groupon one time, there was a coupon offering a discount on an online concealed carry course, which I found a little bit horrifying that you could get a license to carry a concealed handgun without ever having had to actually handle one or learn how to use it. Back to the roughly 40,000 people who died in 2017 as a result of gun deaths. There are those who break that number down and point out that far more than half of those gun deaths are suicide. Actually, in 2017, it was 6 in 10 and that mass shooters can't possibly be in their right minds, so there are suggestions that our society just needs greater access to more effective psychiatric care. Some say, well, you know, more people die from bicycle accidents than by gunshot, as if to say that some people are just blowing things way out of proportion. Others say yes, and because we have data about why those deaths are occurring, industries are being held accountable to make safer products. And the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends, and many cities and even states are now passing legislation that require helmets. And if we could better study the cause of gun deaths in our country, we could better respond with solutions that actually make sense. But there's legislation in place that limits that sort of research, which I find curious. The Pew Research Center in 2013 cited in a study the dramatic decline in gun-related homicides since their peak in 1993. Today's rate of gun deaths, when you remove the suicides, is lower than those in 1993, much lower.
Most people, when polled, are under the impression that right now gun violence is worse than it has ever been, but it's not true. It is important to note, though, that most of the decline that took place in the 90s, uh, that most of the decline that took place was in the 90s, and there's been a much slower decline since the year 2000, and in recent years there has actually been an uptick. This decline in gun violence mirrors a similar decline in violent crimes overall, both fatal and non-fatal, whether there was a gun involved or not. And there's debate about what the source of that decline is exactly, as there appears to be no really clear answers. There are theories ranging from baby boomers have aged out of the higher violence range to there's been a decrease in the use of lead and gasoline, and exposure to that um, lead caused brain damage in kids in, early, in previous generations, causing them to be more violent. Some point to higher incarceration rates. Some people find it interesting that the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act was enacted in 1993, and that mandated federal background checks on firearm purchases in a five-day waiting period before purchases. Despite this decline, the United States still has the highest homicide rates and the highest rate of gun ownership, both total and per capita, than any other developed nation. And studies clearly show that there is a relationship between gun ownership and gun homicide at the local level, but it's unclear if homicides are increased because there's more guns or if more people own guns because there's more homicide. And some point out that mass shootings, while they do receive the most media attention, make up actually a very small percentage of gun deaths, which is also true. And it's also true that as of October 2015, the U.S. had experienced 51 mass shootings since 1997. Mass shootings in this particular study were defined where at least four people were killed, not counting the shooter, in a single um, shooting. The definition of what a mass shooting is varies greatly, so it's kind of hard to nail down exactly how many of these shootings there have been in any given period of time because of that. Of the developed countries, Germany and Switzerland at that time were tied for second place. Each of them had had three mass shootings. Since 2015, of course, incidents of mass shootings in the United States have increased. What's so horrifying about mass shootings, at least to me, is that they're so random and they're aimed at entirely innocent people who have absolutely no direct relationship typically to the person who's firing. So there's no predictability. It makes it really hard to protect yourself. With suicide or with murder that occurs during a crime or a domestic dispute, or even with firearm accidents, it's horrible and it's tragic, but you can point toward a cause that you feel like you can prevent. There are measures that you can take to avoid being the victim of those sorts of gun deaths. But acts of terror and random mass shootings, they're very hard to make sense of. Public institutions, they've put protocols in place to try and make things safer. A few years back when my daughter Zay was in elementary school, I would go to have lunch with her once a week. 
And every week, I'd have to buzz um, at the door outside. They had a camera that would view me. I'd have to tell them who I was and what I was there for. They'd buzz me in. And even though they knew me, I was there every single week. I had to go to the office, check in, get a name tag, tell them who I was there to see, where I would be, how long I would be there. And oftentimes, while I was there, I would overhear the office staff talking about a, um, a lockdown drill that they were going to have later in the day, just so they could practice what they would do if there was an active shooter. That would bring tears to my eyes when I'd hear about that. I mean, I, is this really how we're supposed to live? I had hoped that the Bible would offer clear guidance about how to resolve this debate, but it doesn't, not really. By the fourth chapter of the first book of the Bible, the first murder has occurred. Cain kills Abel because he's jealous. God doesn't legislate access to weapons, but he punishes Cain. In Exodus, there's a passage that allows for defending your home and your possessions against theft with force, deadly force, if necessary, but it also makes it very clear that you better be able to make a really good case for the necessity of that force. Then there's the sixth commandment, which says don't kill. In Hebrew, it more accurately means don't murder, but that apparently doesn't apply to self-defense or war. However, Jesus does radicalize this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew during a series of antithesis statements when he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I tell you, don't even let matters get to that point. If you're angry with someone, you need to take immediate measures to resolve that difference in a peaceful manner. He calls all of us to be peacemakers and claims that if you are, you're blessed. And he does not lift up threats of violence as an appropriate or preferred means of establishing peace. And then in Luke's gospel, the point is made that though a strong man guards his home, there's always the possibility that someone bigger and stronger and better armed might come along and take it from them. But it raises the question, in what do you trust Jesus also acknowledges in his end time speech that violence, weapons, and warfare are a sign of a fallen world. They are the reality in which we live, but it's clear that it is not God's intention for our world. It's not God's intention for the way that we would live our lives. And then just before Jesus heads to Gethsemane in preparation for his final days, which lead to his crucifixion, he tells his disciples that if they do not own a sword, to sell their cloak to get one. Some commentators argue that this is another example of Jesus using hyperbole meant to emphasize the danger that is coming. But as they head to Gethsemane, the disciples announce that they have two swords and Jesus doesn't ask them to leave it behind. However, within hours when Peter draws his sword to cut the ear off of one of those who come to arrest Jesus, Jesus rebukes him. He says, put that thing away. Don't you know that I could call down an army of angels to defend me if I wanted to? Those who live by the sword die by the sword. He then heals the man's ear and surrenders peacefully. 
So what do we do? We begin with the reading of the Ten Commandments. And I didn't read that because the Sixth Commandment says, do not kill, but because God gave these commands to the Israelites three months after delivering them from slavery in Egypt. Once again, God has rescued and claimed them. He defeated Pharaoh, led the people out through a parted Red Sea to protect them from an army that was pursuing them. He fed them with manna from heaven, gave them water from a rock. God had demonstrated over and over and over again God's faithfulness and love for them. And the commandments were a gift a gift that God gave them, meant to teach them how to live as free people who could trust in God, who desires nothing but the fullest and richest and most joyful lives for them. God provided these guidelines to be practiced in response to God's faithfulness to shape them into a community where relationships between one another were based on and guided by their relationship with God. The idea was that relationships that were built on respect and love and compassion and generosity would result in a just and safe and free world. We as Christians, as those who are informed and formed by God's word, as those who trust in a man whose life, death, and resurrection were given for us and demonstrated concretely what it looks like to live faithfully in relationship with God and God's desire for us, we are those who must, whether we believe that everyone should be armed or all guns should be banned or whether we fall somewhere in between, we are the ones who need to acknowledge at the very least that a life lived armed is not the life that God intends or envisions or hopes for. While it may be our present reality, we are called to work toward God's vision and not to live out of our fear. And I think that begins with disarming ourselves, at least metaphorically letting go of defensiveness so that we can engage in respectful dialogue, so that we can listen to one another and so that we can practice empathy for the concerns and needs of those with whom we disagree. We need to disarm ourselves and open ourselves to a genuine interest in better understanding perspectives different from our own. I was disarmed last week on my trip in Montana, I was with someone who I have known most of my life and was certain I knew how they felt about um, gun control. They brought the subject up, and I learned very quickly that their ideas were not at all what I thought they would be, and they were in fact more similar to mine than I would have imagined. Y'all, with the proper posture toward God and a desire to honor and please God, with the assurance of God's deep and abiding love and grace for us all, with the proper posture toward one another, with a relational posture that's grounded in God's love 
the Holy Spirit can work in amazing and unpredictable, creative ways, ways that we could never imagine. Together, we could, inspired by the Holy Spirit, imagine solutions that might never occur to any one of us individually. When we love the Lord God with all of our hearts and minds and strength, and when we love our neighbor as ourself, the greatest and sum of all of these commands, God's kingdom is realized. Peace reigns, and arms will only be necessary to embrace one another in the God in the love that God has for each and every one of us through Jesus Christ. As those who are wrapped in the loving and sacrificial arms of Jesus Christ, let us disarm ourselves that we might all work together for peace. Amen.